Welcome to In the Bible with Jason Worf, recorded at the Bonners Ferry Seventh-day Adventist Church. Open your Bible and let's explore the book of beginnings. This message is entitled Man Up and is taken from Genesis chapter 1. A light bulb is just a simple globe with a, a photo element in it, some uh, light producing element. If you place the bulb on a desk, just uh, disconnected from a socket, it's meaningless, it's useless, and, and it can be dangerous. Drop something on it, it breaks, there's shards of glass. Uh, but if you put it in a lamp and you fit it into a socket and you put it, the, the, connect the socket to a power source, then it becomes useful. It becomes a light that, that has some purpose and it's helpful. And that's the truth for our life. When we're disconnected from our Creator, we're, we lack purpose. It's like we're a light bulb without a socket. But when we um, mesh and connect with God, our Creator, and His plans and His original design, we plug into His source of power, then our lives have purpose and meaning, and, and they're, they're doing what God intended them to do. Genesis 1 describes this God who creates. And, and as, we dis, as we see what God has done and who He is and, and, and who He made, we get a, a sense for some characteristics of who God is, like His loving nature, the fact that He's three, uh, three beings in loving relationship, co-eternal, co-equal beings. Uh, we also get a clear idea of who I am and who you are, uh, the nature of man and, and His creation. So today, we're going to look at God's design for manhood. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm trying to leave the ladies out. Uh, there's going to be good stuff in here for everybody. Uh, but I, I want to f- focus specifically on men here and young men as well. The Bible presents humans as the crowning act of God's creation. He does all these things that are good, and then, and then he gets to, to day six and he makes mankind. Um, and, and the whole biblical account of creation climaxes with this event where God had been speaking, um, let there be light and divide this and, and um, let there be this and all these things he talks about until he gets to man. And then he does something that is quite a bit different. He gets down on the ground and with his hands, he forms and molds a person. And then he, he kisses him with a divine kiss and breathes the breath of life into to this man who becomes the first human. Verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Adam and Eve are made after the image, the likeness of God. What does that mean? What does it mean for Adam to be designed, the, the, the jewel of creation, after God's likeness? God brings into existence this unique thing. Adam and Eve aren't giraffes. They're not elephants. They're not monkeys. Uh, Adam and Eve are, they're God's children. And, and God, He has this specific direction um, as our Creator. He has a direction for our lives, a purpose that He wants us to fulfill. Life according uh, to His instruction ends up being blessed and joyful it's what life was meant to be when we follow God's plan, God's ideal. And if you look at what's happened in our society, we, we ignore God's guidelines and, and recommendations for life to our detriment. Society is broken. It seems to be like it's unraveling. Chaos and confusion compound every level of society. 
And it's because we've ignored our Creator's directions. And so we find broken lives and broken families and broken hopes and broken dreams all around us, everywhere we look. God didn't intend brokenness. He didn't create brokenness. In fact, He didn't even create us and plop us down and say, happy birthday, um, good luck figuring it out. God, God gave us um, connection and relationship with Him and good guidelines. He has directions to protect us from that brokenness. In fact, if we follow His directions, then the brokenness that's in our lives ends up being healed. There are three directions that we find in this creation account, three words that help us to understand God's directives. And the first word that we find is the, the word identity. Genesis 1.27 says that humans were made in the likeness, the image of God. That's, that's something. That's very significant. The, the, the common idea of humanity in our world, a secular science that, that focuses on evolution, the common idea is that our identity is accidental. Uh, Paul, in his letter to the Romans, highlights this truth. In Romans 8, verse 29, he says, "...for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. God designed us to be in His image." And that's the goal. That's, that's the ideal for man, is to be like Jesus. We're called to Christ's likeness. It's not adequate to simply receive Christ as Savior. Jesus is calling us, that, that's essential, but Jesus is calling us um, to take additional steps. The first step is to say, I want to be your, your son, your daughter, uh, Jesus. But then the next step is to follow Him. And, and He says that He'll remake us into His image, me in God's image, you transformed into God's image, reflecting His desires and His justice, His love, His mercy, His integrity, His fidelity. In my actions, my thoughts, my intentions and motives, that's God's calling for manhood. Some say that humans are merely the most complex and highly organized animal, but that we go way beyond that. We're designed in God's likeness. During COVID, schools, especially in 2020, schools had to rethink how education works. They had to change how they focused on uh, how they presented, how they graded, how they tested, um, really what, what the, the definition of success was for education. And I think <clears throat> what they discovered is education means a lot more than just facts and figures. Uh, of course, you and I knew that all along, right? <laughs> but there's, there's something I think that we have to, to think more deeply about. Life is more than just acquiring, like, like education, more than just acquiring skills and knowledge. Being a, a, a man is more than just filling a role. It's about, being, it's about being like Christ. God told His covenant people in Leviticus 19.2, Be holy, for the, I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be like me, God invites us. That's what manhood really is. Or as Paul to the church of, of Ephesus said in Ephesus 4, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put on, or be renewed in your minds, put on this new self. So if this is true, then Jesus embodied true masculinity. We've got all kinds of ideas of what a man is in our world. If, if Jesus is our model, does that change how we think about manhood? 
Christ is our example. Our goal as men created in His image is God-likeness, becoming all that the image of God implies, all that God made us to be, to mirror our Creator by the Spirit's power and work. So that's the, the first word, identity, being in God's image, having the capacity for doing God's things. But the second word in this, uh, the, the encouragement to man up is uh, the word dignity. Some of the world have uh, wandered far away from this idea of dignity. Rather than being beings of innate dignity by design, most people affirm Ernest Hemingway's idea. It was all a nothing, and a man was nothing too. To many, we are no more than an accident suspended between another accident. Being born is an accident, life is an accident, death is an accident, and then we're just dirt. God created us in His image, um, but he, he created us as a result of that with innate dignity as people. We're not accidents. He designed us. He intended us. Genesis says we're made in God's image, and that divine design confers dignity. No matter where you look in all of the world, no matter what they look like or how they speak or what they do, what their culture is, Every single person in all of the planet throughout all history has divine given dignity. Dignity impacts everything, and it impacts it differently than um, rights, for example. We are moral creatures knowing right from wrong because God created us with this inherent dignity. God puts that capacity in us. Genesis 2, 9 to 17 uh, there's a, I'll read a couple of verses here. Uh, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And skip forward a few verses. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam had boundaries, a, a moral understanding of right and wrong. And it, because God gave him that moral understanding, uh, and, and since we know right... We're obligated to do right. Today, boundaries are blurred because instead of dignity, we focus on personal rights. And uh, we, we have the right to life, right? We have the right to choose. We have the right to employment, regardless of race or color. We have the right to equal treatment, to bear arms, a right to equal pay for equal work. There's all kinds of rights that we want to focus on. In fact, we could pile up right after right after right, trying to make sure that the world treats um, us right. But life, as God designed it, is more than mere, a mere list of rights. It's, uh, well, if we truly believe in the dignity of every human being, then the rights won't be an issue. We won't even have to talk about that. When I value human dignity, when I see you as a child of God, created in His image, I automatically protect your rights. I mean, why would I um, threaten your right to life when I know God created and designed you? Why would I treat you uh, differently than I would want to be treated if I know God has created you with the same, same inherent dignity as I have? And in fact, Jesus makes that clear, that we should treat others as we would like to be treated. Esteeming someone's rights doesn't mean that I value their, their dignity. Um, and in man's first home, God taught him this difference between right and wrong. 
Adam needed to know what the boundaries were, what was acceptable, what wasn't. And so God gave him this outline of dignity, of morality. And today we're surrounded by a generation of people who, well, they're raised with a multiple morality uh, code, you might say. Everybody kind of has this perspective. If it's good for you, then that's fine, right? And so there's so many moral codes. Some people remove all the moral codes and say there is nothing. It's just blank, kind of like a road without any lines or or any um, signs. Nobody wants to drive on a road without any lines and without any signs, especially if it's a big freeway with lots of cars going both directions. You You want that yellow line in the middle of the road so that you don't end up coming face-to-face with a a driver coming at you at 70 miles an hour. You need boundaries. You need signs to say where to go. Uh, I was in uh, southern Florida after Hurricane Andrew in 1992, I think. Um, It was back a while. And we we had uh, a truck with a bunch of of, uh, clothes and food for giving out in a place called Homestead, Florida. And we were uh, driving on a freeway. It had lines, but it didn't have signs. The signs were all blown off and, and broken up by the hurricane. And so as we're driving down, we have no idea where to go. And of course, back then there's no cell phones with maps. So you're looking at a map and you're looking for a particular exit um, and you, you can't see it. You don't know where it is. The signs aren't there. You can't drive without signs. We had an FBI escort. And so they cleared the path for us, and they took us where we needed to go. They, they knew the place. Um, so that, that was fun um, in that context. But life can't be done without boundaries. The opposite is also true. If you had a road with lots and lots of lines and lots and lots of signs, many of which conflicted and crossed each other, would that be any better than having no signs and no boundaries? No. And, and at some point, you just say, well, pick your line, pick your, your exit sign, and, uh, uh, you know, that must be okay or whatever, because it just doesn't seem like there's anything that, that can be trusted. Who cares? God created us with boundaries, distinct, clear, and rational. They don't conflict with each other, and they make life better when we follow them. God calls men to live His truth. And also, it's our responsibility to sort out those, those boundaries and to teach them to those that God has given us responsibility for. In our homes, in our churches, God has given us responsibility to be teachers of morality and upholders of human dignity. If you think that what is done in the privacy of your home is nobody's business, then think again. Robert Cole says that moral intelligence isn't only acquired by memorization of rules and regulations. The child is an ever-attentive witness of grown-up morality. We teach by our actions. The Bible puts uh, the same idea a little differently in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Go ahead and turn there for a second. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we'll look at verses 1 through 7. I might skip around here or there, but Deuteronomy 6. And this is the second reading of the law, the boundaries that God has created. And uh, right after he reads them, Moses says this, "'These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you.'" so that you, your children and their children after them, may fear the Lord your God, and so that you may enjoy long life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be in your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk to them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. 
We are the, we are the dignity bearers and dignity teachers of our society. There's a brokenness in our world directly related to our failure to pass on to our children the benefit of moral, spiritual, and emotional instruction. God doesn't intend for people to guess their way through life. He intends for them to grow up with men who teach them His ways. Paul gives us this admonition in Colossians 3.16, "'Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God.'" We live in this world where right, the rights are, are disconnected from purpose. Everyone demands that their right be honored. Um, but what is toleration if there is no conscience? God calls us to actions and attitudes that go beyond rights, that really recognize dignity. Jesus simply said it this way, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And even that ideal is broken and incomplete in this life. Even our best attempt at loving our neighbor as ourself is deficient. We have to love, we have to recognize God-given dignity above rights, and we need to live and teach God's truth. So the first word in this Genesis account, um, he says, man up, recognize your identity, man up, recognize your dignity and the dignity of others. And the third word is responsibility. The final aspect of true godly manhood in the book of beginnings is found in these two words, to subdue and to rule. Men and women too, don't want to leave you out. The fact that you are a special creation of God, it doesn't give you the right to ease. In God's world, nobility is not about others serving you. In fact, Jesus exemplified this when he said that the one who is the greatest must be the servant of all. And so God created Adam and Eve with dignity and nobility and included in that responsibility. Genesis 1 verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Man is given the commission, mankind is given the commission to rule over all the earth. But that rule does not imply uh, violence or control or um, selfish use. To rule over is, it, it implies the, the relationship that we have. God is the creator of the universe. We are noble and, and beautiful creatures that God designed, the pinnacle of his creation, but we are not the owners of our world. And this is why God invites us to return a tithe. I say return because all that we have is from Him. And so He gives us all we have, and we give back a tenth to remind ourselves that it all belongs to God, that we are simply stewards, managers of what God has given us, not owners. This week I heard an interesting news story about a group of lawyers and activists who want to fight for the personal rights of nature. Now, you might think that sounds ridiculous, but it's not as ridiculous as you think. You see, in in law, there are only two types of rights. There are the rights of property and the rights of people. You're either property or a person. Are cows people? No, cows are property. When you have a farm, you as a property owner are allowed to do whatever is reasonable 
um, with your property. So you can slaughter the cow, you can milk the cow, you can let the cow go out to pasture, right? Uh, there, there are laws, right, within certain constraints, but you can do anything you want with property. Uh, but, but people have inherent rights that, uh, that, that the um, property doesn't have. And so they're wanting to suggest that, that nature should have personal rights. We've always thought of it as property. You know, that land that you own, that's property. Do with it what you want. Dig there, burn the trees, whatever you want, as long as, you know, you're burning when it's okay to burn, not during a fire hazard season, right? Whatever you want. Within very limited constrictions, the owner of the property is the one who has the rights. The property itself does not. But these people want nature itself to have rights, personal rights. Like, for instance, the Clark Fork River or the Kootenai River up in Bonners Ferry, um, they want those rivers to have the right to exist, like a, a personal right. The world is not ours to dispose of as we will. It is God's, and we use it according to His will. He has given us the responsibility of managing it. And that management isn't just done with our own benefit in mind. It's done with the idea that our work is to glorify God. Kids, did you hear me say work? God has given us work. And it doesn't matter if you have a job or if you don't, like if you're retired or a kid or if you're somewhere in between. It doesn't matter if you live in a big city or in a small town. Um, If you live out in the country with 100 acres or if you've uh, only got an apartment, God has given us a responsibility to manage our world. If you were to go away for a week or two, maybe three weeks or a month, would you put somebody in some role of responsibility over your home, you know, to make sure that if it's winter that things are cleared out uh, of the driveway or if it's summer that the lawn gets mowed at least once while you're gone, to make sure that the flowers are watered and, and maybe they've got a key to your house and so they just check on things inside. Now, what would happen if you did this and a neighbor was willing to help you out, uh, and then you came home a couple weeks after you left and the pantry had been raided, there's um, trash all around the house, the flowers are wilting, the grass is tall. How would you feel? That wouldn't be a good feeling, would it? God has given us a responsibility, a manager role over his earth, and he's invited us to treat it with respect for him. In Genesis 1, 29 to 30, God says that man's food is seeds and the fruit of plants. Animals and birds get to eat leaves and, and other plants. In the garden, no human and no animal was given the life of another for food. Our stewardship can't be just for our own gain. Our stewardship needs to be for the sake of all that God has created, for the benefit of everything and mostly, primarily, for the glory of God. So the Garden of Eden isn't just a place that men, mankind lived. The Garden of Eden was a place that man served. In Genesis 2.15, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And there, there's two ideas there. The, the work came up again, right? Uh, well, that's an important aspect of this. The first word is part of this, in, in, in this responsibility, implies that there's no magic in the Garden of Eden. Have you ever take, taken care of a garden? Do they manage themselves? No, they take work. They take effort to make sure that the garden works well. Uh, well, 
Adam and Eve had a responsibility to tend and care for and work that garden. The second word is keep. Keep is a, an interesting word. It's the same in Hebrew, the same root as the word that comes later in the next chapter when the angel is sent to guard with a sword the, the garden. Adam and Eve were intended to be protectors of that garden, so to work it and to protect it. These are the two aspects of their responsibility. So keep this in mind. The garden is not theirs to possess. It is theirs to protect. You see the difference? A long time ago, we had slavery. We still have slavery, but it was institutionalized at the time. And a slave was property, a possession of the slave owner. Do you see how that's so different? If, the, if the, the, the person who was then called a slave was thought as a person with dignity, then that, uh, that, that slave owner would be a, maybe a landlord, maybe a boss, right? But you, you treat the other person as an individual. But when it becomes property, we totally change how we think of things. And so God, He doesn't give us the world as property. He gives us the world as a responsibility to manage and protect something that belongs to him. In Eden, God brought Adam all these animals, and he said, can you please name the animals? And so he goes through and he names all these animals. Can, can you imagine the, the procession there? You've got monkeys and penguins and anteaters and hippos and whatever else might have wandered in front of him. I remember a few years ago in August, no, sorry, uh, June, 8, 2014. Um, this was the day before Maxwell was born. And we took our two-year-old daughter, Adeline, all the way down in, uh, to the south of Tacoma somewhere in the woods, and we found this, this place that was an animal preserve. And they had some cages with some dangerous animals, bears and wolves and, and exotic cats and things like that. Uh, stuff that was local to the area, but um, maybe not the best to be roaming free. And then they had this area where you could drive through a bus, and it was an open range, lots and lots and lots and lots of acres with a big fence around it. And they had buffalo and, and uh, exotic deer and interesting things in there. Um, and, and they protected those animals. And we got to watch all these different things and learn about the difference between antlers and horns and fun stuff like that. God made some really fantastic creatures, didn't he? Everyone is unique. And whatever Adam called them, the Bible says that was its name. God gave him that task. What task has God assigned to you? Maybe as a young person, God's task that he's given you is to help your parents around your house, to go to school and do well at growing your mind, right? To, to learn how to play well with others. Maybe that's your task. Maybe you're an older person with a job, and he's given you some, some job, a part-time job, a full-time job um, to, to do. And maybe you don't love it, but the Bible encourages you, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your strength. Put your, put your effort into it. Maybe your job is to lead a family, to teach a classroom, to work a full-time or a part-time job, to care for some infirmed person, and to, to care for children. Whatever your job is, check your attitude. How are you approaching the task God gave you? What do you think about Adam? He's got this procession of animals going before him. Does he, be, does he say, oh, this is so boring. God, why did you make me do this? How many animals are there and how many did he name? I don't know, but 
but there are lots of animals. That could be a tedious task, like tabulating stuff on a spreadsheet at work. But I can imagine that Adam was delighted to see all the variety of God's creation, all the things that he had done. And I think he encourages us to not be grumbling and complaining about the task he's put in front of us, to not resent or neglect the task he's given us. He's encouraged us to enjoy it, to find fulfillment in working for him. And in fact, that's really the idea. When you work for your teacher as a student, or when you work for your students as a teacher, when you work for your customers or for your boss as an employee, you're really not working for yourself or for your boss or for your teacher. You're working for God. Adam's assignment in the garden wasn't drudgery that God gave Adam because he was tired and just didn't want to name the animals. That's not how God related to work. He gave Adam work that would give him fulfillment and dignity that would, well, in fact, it was a pleasurable thing. And God designed work to be pleasurable. And in so much as we submit ourselves to him, he joins us in our work. He partners with us in our work. The more difficult the task, the more joy in seeing God's power at work. What can he do in and through us? The book of beginnings challenges us to man up, to be the men God designed us to be. And, and I would add to be the women God designed us to be, right? To step up to our calling to serve where God has placed us in the strength that God has given you for the purpose he has assigned you to bring glory and honor to him. Lest you think your calling to serve, to give, to help, to strengthen, to care is too lowly a task for you. Consider the son of man, the one for whom you were created, your example, your mentor, your savior. He described his purpose in coming to earth in this way. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You've been listening to In the Bible with Jason Worf. If you'd like to visit us in person, come on Saturday mornings to the Bonners Ferry Seventh-day Adventist Church located on Highway 95, just six miles north of Bonners Ferry. You can also find us online at bonnersferryadventist.org.